Welcome to Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed, your journey into discovering the amazing people and wonderful happenings in and around the Cothet region. Since her days as Powell River's first youth ambassador in 1994, Aaron has continuously been involved in our community. Her love of the Cothet region and her understanding of the importance of connecting to the people living around you inspired this podcast. Coastal Currents is a no-holds-barred look at what's happening in our neighborhoods. But more importantly, it's about the people who live, work, and play here. Insightful interviews, frank conversations, and often hilarious discussions of issues, ideas, and people that matter to you. This is Coastal Currents. Here's Aaron. Welcome to Coastal Currents. I'm your host, Aaron Reed. This episode features Terry Peters, Fire Chief and Director of Emergency Services for the City of Powell River. We discuss growing up in Wildwood, stock car racing in the 70s, his journey in emergency services, broom busting, and what keeps him grounded. Join me in my chat with Terry Peters. Hi, welcome Terry Peters. Hello, Aaron. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. So let's start off with a little bit, actually this one's a little different, it's called Would You Rather. Would You Rather. Would You Rather. So it's just random. It's going to tell us the question, so this should be good. Would you rather die alone or die with your spouse? I would rather die with my spouse. Oh, these are, I don't even know. Would you rather work in a nail salon or a hair salon? A hair salon. (laughs) I would love to have more hair. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, Would you rather go to the aquarium or go to the zoo? Uh, The aquarium. Would you rather go to an amusement park or go to the woods? The woods. Would you rather find your dream job or win the lottery? My dream job. Would you rather fly or have super strength? Fly. Summer or winter? Winter. Hmm, interesting. Salty or sweet? I'm sweet. (laughs) Do you prefer driving or flying? I prefer driving. Are you more cautious or bold? Bold. Cannonball into the pool or dip a toe in first? Dip a toe in first. (laughs) Would you rather sleep in late or take a long nap midday? Sleep in late. Physical strength or mental strength? Mental strength. Do you shower at night or in the morning? In the morning. And do you watch shows one episode at a time or binge whole seasons? I've done both. (laughs) (laughs) And let's find one last one. Do you have your own Netflix account or do you use somebody else's? I have my own Netflix account and other people use mine. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right, hey? Well, that wasn't so hard. That's not so bad, (laughs) hey? (laughs) Born and raised Powell Riverite. I was born and raised in Powell River, that's correct. Born and raised where in Powell River? I'm a Wildwood boy. So what was it like growing up in Wildwood? You know, I think Wildwood, it was, I was blessed actually to grow up in Wildwood and there's many different reasons for that. It's a a very community-minded sort of little area, which many places in Powell River certainly are. But uh, in Wildwood, when I grew up and went to school there, going to school in Wildwood kind of brought you into a bit more diversity than maybe some other places in town. And what I mean with that is our our First Nations friends, literally friends, I have some very uh, good friends, and this was, you know, going to public schools that we were involved with. And there was quite a wild, in the community in Wildwood, there's quite an Italian community in Wildwood. And I I grew up next door to Italians, and I believe you did too. I did. Yes. (laughs) And I actually, by by saying that, uh, my mother-in-law, which is Anna Prospery Porta, has got very fond memories of you living next door. And she says this... (laughs) 
cute little girl used to come over and she'd kind of feed you. I think it was tea and cookies and things like that as, uh, as your family living next door, which were uh, stock car racers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard I used to break through the fence because yes. there was some pretty good pasta next door. That, yeah. 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 So I think, you know, the, in Wildwood, you know, that sense of diversity and, you know, when I went to school, I mean, when you're doing school sports and that, you know, back then when I went to school, there was a certain lot of teams and we competed with the other schools in town. I was quite involved with uh, everything in school, you know, from your volleyball to floor hockey and uh, whatever would, would, would happen. But uh, particularly the floor hockey teams, uh, we were quite a force to reckon with in this community as in my day, and, yeah. uh, you know, in the, the late 70s for that matter, kind of compete around town and playing with the stick boys out uh, south of town and, and this sort of thing. But uh, with with our teams, we gel quite well. And as I said, I've got some very good friends, certainly that from school that are, have moved away. Like, you know, I've moved away and came back. Like grass always seems greener on the other side, but uh, yeah. and they kind of moved back into Paul River. And uh, yeah, and I think a lot of people are kind of doing the same. So uh, I think uh, we certainly offer an awful lot. And like I was uh, saying, you know, I think we're very good travelers for people that actually grow up here. We kind of branch out and end up coming back. So yeah. 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 I've had that conversation with people that when you grow up in this community, you can't wait to graduate and get out. Correct. Right. For that experience. And then you get that experience somewhere else and you recognize what you had when you were here, what it was like to grow up here, how you felt safe here, how you had those connections and that sense of community here. And then everybody's trying to move back, you know, when they have their own kids. And Yeah, you're right. I mean, like I say, with the, the Italian community, I mean, my wife's Italian and that's obviously uh, your, your neighbor's, <laughs> Anna's daughter. And I, I live next door to the Delosios, like I mentioned. And uh, I mean, I, as a kid, uh, would be next door exactly what you were doing. I was doing uh, a few years earlier with the Delosio family. And, uh, and to this day, I eat spaghetti with a spoon, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one in my family that does that. And it was just, I thought, well, doesn't everybody... <laughs> Isn't that normal? Yeah, well, a fork and a spoon, not just a spoon, but, you know. It's you got to have a twirler. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. If you go to fine restaurants, there's always a spoon on the table <laughs> when you're, if you're having the spaghetti, right? So, <laughs> you know, that's something that I, I wanted to mention to you, obviously, is, uh, you know, living next door uh, to, to my mother-in-law and with a stock car family right next door. You know, your dad, actually, being a stock car racer, Terry, I mean, is, uh, was a big deal, certainly in my world growing up. And he was like the icon, sort of, in my idol as, as, a, as a stock car racer as the Lewis boys were so and if I can get it all right I mean there was Kevin and Rod and Terry and uh, Reg and Darby I think was the other I don't know if there was any more but they there were, was Murray and Murray okay, yeah there you go yeah so yeah, yeah. so that's pretty good wow. yeah, yeah you, know, I, you know what I said for us uh you know my mother you know she tried to, to uh, kind of get us as a family you know involved with you know religion in the United Church in the town site and on Sundays, uh, she'd drag us down to the town site to the old United Church, which is right across from the store there, which is a home now. After we get home, Dad would have us all ready, including Mom, and we'd jump in the car and we'd head out to south of town and we'd go out to the Upper Mainland Racing Association uh, uh, group out there and we'd watch stock car racing all, all afternoon on Sundays, right? So, yeah, watching all the races there and the guys out there. Uh, trying to think, Don McGregor was uh, kind, of a, kind of a radical out in the track and Don Crumpucker and... Uh, Bob Perry and, and Diana and a few others and I just uh, that was just a big deal uh, for us is when I was certainly growing up stock car racing and you don't see that anymore right so, no yeah. and I wish I could have seen that I, I remember growing up somehow all my dad's trophies ended up in boxes oh. at my mom's parents yeah. house yeah. in Stillwater and I remember finding them in the carport and there was just boxes and boxes of these trophies I thought yeah. they were so cool but I never actually got to I actually think my mom 
may have rolled a car when she was pregnant with me, but I never got to experience that that I can recall. I've got pictures when I was a baby at the track, but right. I don't. I yeah. never got to watch those races. Yeah. I know people locally have talked about wanting to get that going again at some point, which would be kind of cool. Oh, it would, yeah. It's, but, I guess be a getting place, and I think insurances and things like yeah. that. Now, I mean, back then it was a dirt track, and you got to remember when we were there, we were just sitting up on the bank. They had a concession. They had flag people, and they're, as they're coming around the bends, there's rocks flying up wow. into the stands, and as kids, we would just sit on the, the wooden sort of fence there and watching it in the dust, and then, of course, they would finish the race, and then a water truck would go around, and the crews uh, all dressed in white, if I remember this, and they'd wow. be walking and picking up rocks <laughs> and before they kind of do their races. And there was a B class and a C class, and I think that was just based on the engine sizes and that, but uh, I think uh, Terry Lewis, was uh, he, he was a crowd favorite, no question about it. <laughs> Actually, and he fun. had my name too. <laughs> there you go. That's why, right? So it just made sense for me that that, that was my guy. <laughs> He's actually, we were just talking about that a few days ago. I was talking to him on the phone and he was talking about stock car racing and he was talking to me about his strategy on the track and how oh, I'm going to get in trouble because now I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was, it was about making them feel like he was going to pass them on the inside and then getting them on the outside or something and yeah. how... You couldn't bump guys, like you weren't yeah, allowed to yeah. bump them from behind, yeah. but you could rub them on the sides. And yeah. so just how he'd play these mind games with the drivers, because his car didn't actually have the same power as a lot of them did. So he'd use he'd use strategy yeah. to win. So it's kind of... Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's the finesse, right? Right. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's what a good stock car racer does, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have, uh, definitely wish I could have lived those days because yeah. like you said, it's, it's kind of we get to this day and age and... And everything's killed due to liability right. now, right? I mean, there's good reason for it, but yeah, yeah. it's too bad because it sounds like it would have been a blast. Yeah. And, and it's funny because most of those Lewis guys, they're still driving. Yeah. My uncle Kevin, he's, well, he's retired now. He's camping. That's, yeah. that's camping and fishing. That's yeah. his thing. But Uncle Murray's still trucking. My cousins are trucking, so their sons are trucking. Actually, and my cousin yeah. Colleen, she's yeah. a trucker. Well, like I say, Kevin still lives. He lives next door to my mother-in-law. Still. That's right. Yeah, and he's know, in my dad's old house. Yeah, yeah, he's in your dad's old house. You know, my mother-in-law. I, I I can't say enough. I mean, I'm a you know a son-in-law for that matter that loves his mother-in-law. Right. Yeah. I mean, just I mean, is perfect. Uh, she just she's an absolute just a, a gem and a, a princess. Right. Aww. But I mean, you look at her. She lived next door to a family of stock car racers never complained uh, if she'd be the one over there like handing food across the fence sort of thing and it was fine she knew that they would you know, get the cars fixed and eventually they would shut down and <laughs> and, and i mean my, my father-in-law was the same They're, these are just the kind of people they were i mean god if that happened today if a stock car moved next door to somebody oh. <laughs> shut up yeah. what's funny you'll find funny is on the other side where the police officer used to live is now uh, <laughs> murray actually lives there who's a stock car racer racing currently now really so, so she's had him on both sides oh that's hilarious I mean, what a good neighbor <laughs> <laughs> if you're a stock car racer right she's the one to have yeah dad's yeah. in his yeah. place people complain uh with his dump truck firing up yeah the big old diesel engine yeah. so your dad yep. was a firefighter. My dad was a, yeah, he was a captain. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Was he a firefighter your whole life or did no. that come? No, no, no. When uh, my dad is, uh, he worked down in the wharf in the mill, actually. That's oh. what we're, I certainly remember young, obviously, as my dad was a mill worker and he was a volunteer firefighter up in Wildwood. So I, at an early age, uh, I just remember because back then there wasn't pagers or anything like we had. There was a siren that would be uh, down at the church for oh, that matter, right? Really? Yeah, it'd be on top of the pole and... I think there was a few other in the community, but that was the main one. 
And yeah, in the middle of the night, uh, dad would get up and roar down there to a fire. We'd hear the siren goes. Everybody knew there was something, something. going on. Yeah, it was kind of like that uh, at the time. Then uh, he, I uh, guess, applied for the fire department at, at one time and, and left the mill and started off in the, in the fire department. Yeah. Is that yeah. what kind of got the fire in your, uh, no pun intended, but is that what got the fire in your blood? For... Uh, no. No? <laughs> Not at all? I, I could tell you. Uh, I, I, I was a different track with the fire department. I certainly, you know, growing up and doing all the things within the community here and having all the friends. And I um, started going through school in Max Cameron. And then uh, I got a job as a casual worker in the mill, right? So I got hired as a laborer in the mill. So I was, uh, you know, lucky actually at that time working in the mill and actually still going to school school so in my okay. you know end of my grade 11th year in grade 12 then we would work weekends but we weren't we could work the odd four to 12 but they didn't really like that but usually we we're working on the weekends and you'd be all over the mill doing that sort of thing and then in uh i graduated in 1981 and in 19 oh just the beginning of 83 i guess it was that uh, when the curtailments were happening in the mill mm-hmm. and things were mcmillan bloedel right at the time and there were yeah. some, some layoffs and that stuff going on I uh, I had taken a first aid course once, uh, you know, because I, that was just a, a good thing to do always, right? And yeah, I, I still said, is. Still is. And yeah. I think it's a very gateway for a lot of people that is, is, is doing that. And uh, I'd taken this first aid course. And then um, I was sitting at the intersection at uh, Joyce and Duncan, and an ambulance went by. And I thought, well, I got a first aid ticket. Maybe I could... Uh, Go be an ambulance attendant. So, I what I did is I, I went up to the ambulance station after they got back, just seeing if uh, they. You know, I thought that'd be kind of a cool job, right? Yeah. I had no idea what it was about, and uh, the ambulance kind of rolls back in, and I said, "Oh, I got my first aid ticket, and uh, you need any uh, ambulance drivers? You know, I figured I'd just be a driver or something." And uh, it was uh, Harry Caton, I think, was working on there with a guy named Pat O'Neill. And uh, they just kind of looked at me and laughed and said, uh, you got what? You know, hey, you got to have this ticket there, son, blah, blah, blah. And you go out, you get that sort of stuff. And you prove us that you could do that. Maybe maybe we might hire you. So, I, so it was a challenge, right? <laughs> challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. So I went and got an industrial first aid ticket, which is what a, a criteria at that time was, right? And that was like in 83. I went back, I got my ticket. That took actually, at that time, it was a big deal because there was levels of courses, like A, B, C, D sort of stuff, and there are double A tickets. And I, uh, I came back with my C, brand new C ticket, which was the lowest one you could get because <laughs> your first year you couldn't have the double A ticket. You had to settle it then. But if you come back next time and you're really good, you maybe you could come bump yourself up. And uh, it was based on how many years because you had to come back the next year. But if you got a B ticket, it was two years. A oh. ticket would be three years and a double A would be four years that you could come back for your ticket. And that's what you needed to work in logging camps and things like that. And it's very different now the way the training goes. But I came back with my ticket in there. My dad at that time had been in the fire department, but they didn't know really who, who I was. And they said, oh, okay, come in on Saturday and we'll, we'll start you off. And that started my career in emergency services. Really? And, yeah. And uh, and then from there, uh, I worked on, on there. And um, yeah, it was, uh, they just kind of did like in-house training and things like that. And then I ended up uh, going down into the Justice Institute in Vancouver under the Paramedic Academy and working my way into EMA training, which is what is our, back then it would be like PCP training, primary care paramedic. And, okay. And then uh, my my second big break was they were looking for a sheriff. And one of the guy, Ken Haycock was his name, was he was a paramedic. And he said to me one day, he says, you know, they're, they're hiring sheriffs. So you should uh, maybe apply for that because, you know, you got your first aid tickets and... 
you got a clean record. And But what I had was a class four driver's license because I had to go get a class four driver's license. When I went to the ambulance, they actually said, you got to get this when I, when I came in okay. to do that. And, and I got my class, which is easy. I took my aunt's car because it was a four door. <laughs> Apparently it's all you needed. And really? uh, yeah, well, I could tell you other stories oh. about some of my experiences getting licenses back then. <laughs> <laughs> but but I was the only one that applied that had a class four driver's license. Really? So I, so I got the job as a deputy sheriff. And it was the same deal. So then I next, but the, the, that was different. Yeah, I couldn't just kind of start the next day. I had to go down to Vancouver to the uh, sheriff's academy and, and uh, stay down there for a while. And I, once I got my, my training down there, and then I came back and uh, and I worked in Paul River. And then they, uh, they needed somebody over in... Courtney so I'd kind of go over to Courtney and I had an aunt that lived over there and I kind of stayed with her and then I'd work out of the Courtney sheriff's office and then next thing you know I'd uh, be on the, the prisoner run which would come from Campbell River down to Victoria and uh, then I worked in uh, Nanaimo and, Vic- and, and Victoria and uh, and then I would kind of roll around right so and then one day I got offered to go to Vancouver actually as, as a sheriff working in 222 Maine downtown Wow. And, and uh, while I was down there, I just kind of phoned up the ambulance service down there and said, hey, you need any any paramedics, right? Because I had my training. And yeah, we do. So because I was part time, right? And yeah. so I was working down in the, you know, daytimes in the in the courthouse and nighttimes running the ambulance downtown. Holy and, cow. But I, I was also single. <laughs> <laughs> So kind of moving, moving around. And then uh, that all came to an end because uh, they decided that uh, there was too many part-timers that were kind of taking up these jobs. And by having X amount of part-timers, you could have more full-timers that could do that, right? So I didn't have the seniority uh, uh. was tied in. So I got kind of bumped out of there. And uh, and then my home base was Powell River. So I came back here working sheriff here. And then um, uh, a job came up in the mill as a, as a security guard. At, because I'd left the mill years ago, but it, McMillan Bodell was kind of carrying on. And uh, I uh, applied for a securities job there and I had all the credentials that they needed. Hmm. And uh, so I got a job in the mill as security. And Really, because I, I doubled my wage <laughs> by working in the mill opposed really? to what I was doing. I mean, I, I love being a sheriff and, and, the, and the paramedics. is That was kind of my goal. Yeah. But being a sheriff was really, I met a lot of really good people and some people I don't care to really kind of know again. But every sheriff I ever worked with always told me to, um, you know, you got to get out of this, right? There's no future in sheriff. And I go, yeah, but it seems like a good job and where it is. And I, you know, I think it is it is a good job. But I didn't see a lot of people really kind of giving that positive thing towards it. And I just kind of always thought about that. It was, you know, enjoying it. And why, why are people that are working on it not really having that sort of love that I'm seeing? I got the job in the mill as a security guard. And this is funny because you brought up about the spark with my dad being a firefighter. Then what happened is uh, I had some friends up in Wildwood that said, hey, you because I was living in Wildwood at the time in uh, uh, the Paul Lake Trailer Park <laughs> <laughs> with my brother. Actually. I've lived there before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from working in the mill, then I had a friend in Wildwood that uh, said they were looking for firefighters in, in, in Wildwood and uh, it, there's free beer. <laughs> And uh, I said, free beer? Because, uh, yeah, it's, a, I, it's no surprise. I don't mind beer. <laughs> and I said, yeah, really? Oh, yeah, just come on up and practice on Monday nights. So uh, I kind of showed up and it was just, I mean, there was like 25, almost 30 
guys and all, all you know paid on call you know volunteers as we called them at the time wow and i showed up there and they said yeah come on in whatever else and they went up and interviewed me and this was the the volunteers they said oh yeah you know are you you're single you're getting married and asking all these questions and it was afterwards and they gave me a couple of beers and they said yeah so every night you come in here you get two tickets and you get a couple of beers and uh, that's basically what it is so every time you show up you get beer <laughs> and i said yeah we'll work sign, for beer <laughs> sign me up so so I became a volunteer firefighter for beer. Now I'm the fire chief. <laughs> Go figure. So, so my dad had nothing to do with it. And it was all of a sudden, he's, he was saying like, oh, what are you doing that for? You know, I thought you were going to be a paramedic or a sheriff or, you know, we were working down in the mill. And and I said, yeah, well, this is just part time, right? And then uh, then what oh. was happening in the mill, uh, I, I kind of switched because I was still working. That was just this part time gig, obviously, just right. community service. Right. Right. And free beer. Fed and free beer. Right. In the mill, I uh, they were looking for a first aid attendant down in the mill, which I had all my tickets for that. And there was nurses originally that worked in the mill. Mm. So I was the first male. Well, I wasn't a nurse by a 90 stretch, but uh, there was a lady called Willie Perry that was down in there too. She working, obviously, as a first aid attendant, but they just needed the certificates that I had, obviously, as a paramedic. Right. So the mill just, what I did is I did both jobs there. So I was I was making my whole life on part-time jobs sort of thing, wow. working out. And then my wife, Lori, was, uh, you know, I, I I met her years ago, obviously. Until she lived just down, well, next door to where you lived, just <laughs> down the street. And, um, and since she was down in Victoria, she's a hairdresser, right? So going back to our this or that question yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't practice a lot on me. <laughs> The because uh, when I was working in the mill, then uh, they, I was still kind of doing a little bit of sheriffing back and forth. I was kind of sheriffing, then kind of ran into her again down in Victoria, right? So, oh, really? Yeah, it was kind of we knew of each other, sort yeah. of thing, right? So, yeah, so I was over in, in Comox, and then she was down in Victoria, and then as, as we were just kind of getting to know each other, sort of stuff, she had get this funny. She had a Honda Civic Gold one, and I had a Honda Civic Blue one. Really? Yeah. And what happened, I would drive down into Victoria and her car wasn't running well. So I'd limp it back up to Comox and I would fix it and then bring it back. And then she'd wreck my car and then I'd <laughs> bring it back. But during all this time that this was going on, like it was just jobs that I had were, I was never full time in any of them. I was just kind of always part time. So I kind of moved around. Uh, ultimately, uh, she ended up coming back into Paul River and I kind of came back here as well. And then in, in 1988, I, I took a leave. Her parents were going back to Italy because they were from uh, from Italy and they were traveling over there. And they asked me if I just wanted to travel with them, right? So, wow. Yeah. So in 1988, I, I uh, jumped on a plane with my in-laws. And uh, well, like not my in-laws at the time. Not yet. Yeah. Not at, at the time. That's a but, good way to try them. Yeah. Out. Well, we've been getting to know each other, and, they, <laughs> I, and I think they approved of me. At least I think they did. <laughs> you know, if I might say differently. <laughs> Suckers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in '88, we flew off to uh, originally to Italy. I mean, we landed in uh, England, and then we flew off to, to Italy. And uh, they were from a little place called Carpenetto Romano which is 75 kilometers south of Rome. But, but what oh. they did is we went to their hometown and then Lori and I traveled around backpacking and her dad made it very clear that I had to bring her back. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My intention with that, because uh, I'd say I had a really good relationship with, with her, her family, is that when we were in Heathrow Airport, I had a beer with her dad. We're sitting down and that's what I, I asked him if I could bury his daughter. Oh, you did the traditional, I can I have her I, I did. Aww. I did. And he told me no. <laughs> <laughs> really? So my answer to him was, uh, okay, I guess we need to have another beer. <laughs> 
And uh, and then he explained to me that you know you know you're not going to get married over here. You know he says you can do this, but uh, I don't know why you're asking me now. But so he says you know when you get back there we'll have a big wedding. And, we'll, and I said well, a big wedding is a lot of people on your side of the church, and I've got a bunch of rowdy friends and family over here that don't take up less than half. And I, I just don't see that. And I said let's just let the the, the girls decide right what, what they want. So so he says okay. So that was that was the deal. That was our okay. compromise. So, but he was very happy, right? Aww. I asked Lori to you know marry me back in uh, in Italy. Oh, that's and so then cool. We traveled around and we kind of worked our way around to the Oktoberfest uh, all over the place here in you know in Belgium and, and working up into you know, obviously France and working around and and then we uh, went to the Oktoberfest, which starts in September when you're uh, when you're over there, which is great. Beer drinkers, eh? More they beer. start they start early. Yeah. <laughs> And then we went down uh, to Greece, which is uh, was interesting because when we went to, through Greece, we were on the the trains and we went down through Yugoslavia, which is now Bosnia and Croatia and things like that. Yeah. Which is in '88, it was still Yugoslavia, and when we went through there, uh, it wasn't very good. Like it was, mm. we thought this place is a little bit hostile, right? So uh, we kind of just kind of burned right through there, which Rocky, my deputy, uh, now we we always have a little joke about that because he was there in 1991 or 92, oh. uh, like f- as as a Canadian soldier, like fighting. And I said, I was there before you. I was there in 88. I said, <laughs> it didn't look so great, but uh, I'm glad you went over there and sorted that out. <laughs> <laughs> I just hightailed it out yeah, of there. So. We just got out of there. And he's going, you were there? <laughs> yeah, with my uh, girlfriend at the time. Oh, <laughs> he just man. thought I was crazy. But yeah, yeah, Lori, I've, I've put her through a few things, I think. <laughs> but and then we went down into Greece and uh, we, we stayed in, uh, well, we went right into Athens and went out to the islands. So it's a stayed in a little island called Peros and uh, then came back and you know, ended up in a riot actually downtown Athens. And But the whole time in my head, her dad, you better bring her back. Right. right? So, oh yeah. So I was, yeah. I, that was, that was my mission, right? Bring and then we, her then we, back. So we didn't go back up through Yugoslavia. We kind of zipped over to the bottom of the boot in Italy and then came back up into, uh, back into Rome where her aunt met us in Rome and uh, she had organized our, our whole wedding for us. And by that, she took me to the Canadian consulate because uh, her, Lori's parents were there. Yeah. And because uh, Anna had had, they had the chat and I said, yeah, let's get uh, marry you guys here in Italy. Right. So. So I had to go to the consulate and I had to swear that I didn't have any other wives and things like that. And uh, so I got that okay. And then they got the okay to marry us. And the town's uh, mayor and doctor of this little tiny town married us. Um, really? Yeah, on September 28th, 1988. In Italy? In Italy, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah we were married in Italy. It's funny because when I was in, uh, oh God, we were in Monte Carlo. I know I'm telling this story, but uh, I remember I phoned two people. Well, originally... I phoned my dad and said, because uh, I told my dad my intentions before I'd left. So um, anyways, my grandmother, I was very close to my Aww. grandparents, right? And uh, both of them really fun on each side. So my grandmother and my dad knew. And I so I phoned up my uh, my grandmother and I said, because usually my dad was kind of down there, always doing some work for her because she was you know, elderly at the time. And, and then... Uh, and I said, you know, my grandma's dad there. Yeah. I said, just tell them that, uh, that I'm going to do it. Right. And he says, okay. And then she phoned, looked out the window. You better go talk to Eleanor, which is my mother. Right? <laughs> and my mother's, you know, oh, no. <laughs> so the day she died, she never forgave me for this. Right. Because right? <laughs> she was like, Joe wanted the big wedding. Right. Yeah. 
So we. That's uh, hard for the mamas. We want to be it, there for it, that. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it is. But uh, we got married there, and, uh, and then we came back, obviously, and with as husband and wife, and moved into my single wide trailer in the public trailer park. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history, yes. Living the dream. Yeah, we're living the dream. Yeah, so that's so, kind of a roundabout way to where we were going. But uh, yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting, though. Yeah. I, I yeah. pictured you getting married in Wildwood, at, you know, with nope. a big Italian nope. None of reception us, or no, something. My mother and my father-in-law uh, were bound and determined that we got people together, right? So it wasn't the church. So, so what they did is they rented the lawn bowling club and got all their friends together. And we had to show up and... Kind of, uh, you know, have uh, you know, as the guests of honor, so they could party. Right. About, <laughs> yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, Lori, Lori was working. I worked that day. I showed up and I had to work the next day. And like Lori was working as well, and we just kind of did, did our thing. And uh, but uh, yeah, no, we've been we, we've been together ever since. Right? Wow. So yeah, three kids and yeah. So where did Australia come into play? Uh, Australia came in in 2005. I didn't mention it with uh, being a firefighter. Actually, after all that was going on, uh, there were firefighter positions were coming up and I applied. First time I applied, I, I didn't I didn't get the job. And then uh, I think the chief of the day that was there was Charlie Morris. And then uh, there was a new chief that came in afterwards, Wayne Langdale. I mean, when I applied, because uh, my dad was a firefighter and they, they didn't kind of like that. So it was kind of a, a disadvantage for, for that sense. But uh, when Wayne Langdale was there, I applied for it. And I had a lot of training behind me, right? So mm-hmm. that was done, and uh, and my certainly as being a firefighter, I worked into the, in the skill sets as well up in, in Wildwood, and uh, and carried on, got all my credentials that, that needed to be done in, in that particular time. And yeah, when I applied, they just looked at my resume, and they, of course I I did this, and I remember them actually talking about this as well. You know, your father works here, and uh, and I said, well, apparently that was an issue, but you know, I I want to say, and he said, well, you know, if you were working with your father and there's issues, would there would we be have any concerns with you guys working together? And I said, absolutely not. But I said, I'll tell you right now, if you make me work with my mother, I'll quit. <laughs> <laughs> and I, they did exactly that. They laughed, so I I got their attention, and I said, and I said, I rub serious about that. <laughs> my, my mother, as much as we're, we're, we're a bit of the same, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Usually so, makes it a challenge. Yeah, yeah, makes it a challenge. So anyway, so uh, I got that job actually in 1991. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I've been in the fire service now for coming up well, 31 years. 31 right? so, years. Yeah. But in 2005, there was uh, these opportunities for exchange firefighters that were going around with the International Firefighter Exchange Program. And uh, I talked to our chief at the time, which was Dean Gearhart, and uh, I said that, you know, that's, that's, I'm interested in that because I, I, I like traveling, right? And Laurie, had, she'd been to Australia prior to, and there was one uh, for Australia. So I put my application in and had to show my credentials and got a panel and actually did, uh, you know, an interview over the phone back then. There wasn't nothing like, you know. No internet. No No Zoom. Well, I mean, 2005, there was, I mean, it was was like 2003, really, when we were kind of like doing that process. And then, so there was still a little bit of something going on, but I remember being over the phone. I got actually tied up with uh, uh, Tasmania, the the Tasmanian Fire Service, which is a provincial service, Tasmanian branch. So a guy by the name of Jimmy Newstead, actually. Well, actually, there was another fellow, but then there was Jimmy Newstead, so that uh, came through, and and we kind of chatted, and they said, yeah, we're willing to take you, and you could come over here. And it was a, a big learning curve for our department here, because we're quite a small department, where I, I worked, uh, it was based out of Launceston, Tasmania, 
which at that time was about 125,000 people. So it was, a, you know, that's Nanaimo size, a little bit smaller, or a bit bigger than Nanaimo. I think there were about 100,000 or so over there. But when I, when the shift that I worked on over there, I mean, there was 12 people on my crew that I worked on. And I remember when I come in the morning, they'd line wow. us all up. We'd stand there and I'd kind of walk in and I'd kind of look at everybody and they'd, they'd look at that. And they'd always kind of, because you get tagged as the Canadian, right? So they yeah. just call you the Canadian. The Canadian. And, they, and they would say, you know, you know, hey, Canada, you know. And uh, I don't want to do my Australian accent because <laughs> apparently I'm the one with the accent. Yeah. <laughs> they would always ask if I'm just learning to count. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, sir, but this is my entire department. <laughs> And then when I would call Jimmy, actually, over here, he couldn't believe. He thought I was joking that there was only 12 guys, right? So he came over, and he was, like, driving the truck, like, right away. And he had an international driver's license, so he was that. But, you know, that, and he was, like, he had no idea that throw it in. But I got buried in the department. But but wow. quite quickly enough, I was they, they promoted me to a senior firefighter, which meant I sat in the back on the left side. And so there was a driver, their station officer, the usually the new recruit, and then a senior firefighter. There was always four on a truck. We're here, we might run as two. So right. Jimmy would get in the truck, it'd be him and the captain, and he would just be shocked. Wow. <laughs> Which in the world of firefighting is what we run here is is very low. Actually, it doesn't meet any National Fire Protection Act standards, right? So, so but uh, we traditionally we're a department that does more with less, but. But working there in, in Australia, they treated me very well over there. And I ended up working around in different crews. And then the chiefs over there were, were great. And what the one chief there, Mike Brown, his uh, he was kind of a, a well-known Rotarian in Tasmania. And it was, I say, it was a provincial service. He wanted me to go to the Rotary meetings and things like that. So, well, of course, when I went, I had my full dress uniforms, which they didn't have over there. They just had their regular station wear. They didn't, oh, really? Yeah, it's very different, right? There's some different huh. different things that, that uh, from us over here. I mean, the concepts are all the same. We've all got the same goals in that, but yeah. they based on pressures. We're based on volumes and the sort of stuff and uh, with our, their trucks and they drum Scania's and just different sort of things. I, mean, I certainly learned a lot. They're big on the on like wildland firefighting, but they've got mostly scrub trees and this sort of stuff. It's not like what we have here. I was going to ask about that. Like I know here, if it's like outside of the city and not in the regional, or it'll be forestry. Yeah. Do they have the same kind of setup that way or is it... All centralized. It's pretty much all centralized and, and through the fire service. They don't really hmm. have, not that I certainly dealt with. I mean, not that I worked with. It was, I was, uh, because when I was there as a firefighter, I was just a firefighter. We didn't do a lot of medical calls. Hmm. We didn't do uh, motor vehicle accidents. We really? Just, we just fought fires and we were in a, in a city. It's different now, but yeah. in 2005, that was one of the reasons I was there because I was from a department that was multitasked. Oh. and did all of this stuff and uh, they had it like they call them the ambos was their ambulance service okay uh, yeah they call the ambos and those guys the ambos do that but i remember being horrified going by an accident scene once that we were just in the fire truck we were just like in line with the rest of the cars trying to go around us and the ambos were you know trying to extricate the people out of the car and they didn't i didn't see any jaws of life of anything or what they were using I mean, I wasn't the only exchange firefighter. There's people out of uh, England and Devon, England. There was a few from there and, and a, co a couple other Canadians that were working out of uh, Devonport and one out of Hobart, uh, the other cities. And we all got together actually as a group and then uh, collectively just said, okay, this is just, because we never, as a firefighter, you don't go to another community and start telling people what to do. Uh, right. We always appreciate the services that you have. And if you've got stuff, come and chat with the department and, and, and work with that. And if you've got some good ideas, we'll do that. And, and we teach them, this is the reasons we do it this way, because, and this is, you know, the history and what's better. But, you know, to come into a community and just start, you know, 
you know, dictating things with other fire departments or having opinions without even being involved with the department is just, uh, you know. It's kind of rude. <laughs> it, it's a little bit beyond rude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, really, I mean, for, for that. I mean, so, I, you know, knowing that, we'd never do that. So, but there's channels to do that, right? And so, of course, I chat with our station officers and the, and the fire chiefs and just saying, this is what uh, we, we see. And, and they wanted that information from us. So we had very lots of meetings. And I say with the interesting things, but it was a very a political football, if you would, mm. or, or footy ball <laughs> in, in Australia. <laughs> and the, the ambulance service, and because when you're talking to provincial fire service and the ambulance service over there, they were kind of at, at loggerheads, right? Which I think it's a lot better now. And it was, I think, a bit of work that we certainly did. And I was certainly involved quite a bit with, uh, obviously, the, the departments that I worked in and their unions over there. There was, uh, I was been very much involved with the unions here, and I was certainly the president of our of our group here and, and involved with provincial bodies and that. And over there with the United Firefighters Union of Australia, I was, uh, you had to be a member that when you went there, I kind of chatted. And they wanted to know things as well. And then there was uh, between myself and some other firefighters, and it was led by me and actually using with our International Association of Firefighters here, it was... It didn't make much sense to me that I was still actually covered under my benefits programs in Canada and paid under my wages over there because uh, that's how it worked. Jimmy would be back and forth. Right. And should I ever be, say, injured or on a scene in that, then that I would my benefits as a, as a firefighter, which everybody certainly has and the dangers we do at our job, I would be covered, but they didn't have it which didn't make any sense to me at really? all. So I brought that up into their unions and yeah. uh, got them connected in with ours over here. And then one thing led to another. And with our, our local reps and that, the uh, the World Firefighters Union, which is the global alliance we formed within firefighters, uh, certainly around, around, literally around the world. So that's been quite involved. And that was it all started from a few exchange guys in Tasmania, which myself wow. being included with that. I can't imagine doing that kind of work and not having coverage for that well that's you know because you know you got work safe and this sort of thing yeah. but when it comes down to presumptive cancers like this this sort of thing and I, i'm saying that's just one, one of many yeah yeah you, you've got your work safe coverage but then if you had a long-term disabilities and things like that after that if your your benefits run out as from your employer then there's nothing to carry you on afterwards wow. we're in british columbia here uh, our, our our provincial governments that recognize firefighters and the jobs that they do and uh, and the, the inherent dangers that come with that. So there's presumptive cancers that are involved with that. Is should that ever happen? So you don't have a, a sick firefighter trying to you know defend the fact that he had an occupational uh, injury. Uh, right. I mean, I, I call that injuries. And no, I agree. Don't think the average person knows the kind of things that you get exposed to doing that line of work, yeah. and not just going into fires, but. Yeah. Pulling apart vehicles and accident scenes and heck, there's biohazards and well, stuff that, you know. Yeah, you're right. And that was, yeah, everywhere. Like I say, yeah, you know, in Tasmania, I don't know if... I have no, I've never it, been to Australia. Yeah, no, it, it is a, it's a very unique country. Lori and I literally have an extended family over there, uh, certainly where we worked. And, and a lot of them have moved out of Tasmania and onto the mainland. But, uh, but I worked in Launceston and Hobart and Devonport and Burnie, which is all the, the main the groups over there. And I was very lucky as I was actually one of the guys chosen because of just my uh, extrication skills and that that we have in our department here. You have very well-trained firefighters in this community. I've just got to say that. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I, I've worked around 
And, uh, you know, we're this full service. And everybody said, what's a full service? It basically, that means we do everything. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and uh, we do more with less in many cases. Yeah, we, uh, you know, working down there. And I was fortunate to be actually part of the uh, Target Tasmania. No, you might say, what's Target Tasmania? Target Tasmania. It's, it's, a, it's a road rescue. It, uh, it's a road race. And oh. I was part of the rescue team. Okay. So of that. So if you have to ever to Targa, T-A-R-G-A, and there's one in Newfoundland as well. There's oh, two really? two in the world, one in Tasmania, one in Newfoundland. No kidding. And they race cars on the streets uh, all over the island, like in Newfoundland and in Tasmania. Really? And I mean cars. We're talking Ferraris, Porsches, Datsun 510s, uh, which were my favorites because I had a Datsun 510 when I was younger. It was my very first car. That's like it, fancy stock car racing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fancy stock car <laughs> racing. You got that right. So. Wow. Yeah, so I was on that, and that was a, you know, a few-week event. And I, uh, I was uh, a, a driver, and I was with a paramedic. And both of us would uh, – so it, the way it worked, it was just crazy. You would get up to the starting lines, and we would just be the rescue team, right? So in uh, the cars, every 30 seconds, they would release a car. Boom, release a car, release a car, 30 seconds. And they would just go – full out right the, the, just they're racing to their next point you know and chicanes and all this sort of stuff they would do and and i'd just you know be there with, where comes the ferraris Ooh, you know, just kind of cool <laughs> because, oh yeah it was just kind of cool right so yeah. <laughs> didn't see no number 58 stock car though <laughs> and then uh there would be obviously you know uh, marshals on the tracks of that and then we get the call okay we've got a car over the bank or we got this and we're just in a regular car, but we would be, because they did have rescue. We didn't carry the rescue equipment with. I was on the, I guess, the chase car, right? Okay. That, that was my job with the chase car. And then we had the, 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 the larger van that had the equipment. So the chase car went out. And what our job was is to assess the scene, deal with the scene, report the scene. And if we could, if it was, you know, if it, we could neutralize the scene, get the car off the road if we had to. So we had ropes and things like that, hook onto it and just literally drag it off the road if oh, we wow. could. But if the car was upside down, then we would call a full stop. But what they did, depending how far they were, before we'd get there, they would keep releasing cars. So every, oh my God. yeah, well, what happens if we left, they would leave it for a, I think it was a minute. They would, they would say, okay, so the minute we would take off and then they wouldn't release the next car, then they would release the one after. So we had to get there before, and these are race car drivers. <laughs> so now you remember when you're in Australia, you're driving on the other side of the road oh, too. No. Well, when you're racing, it doesn't matter what side of the road you're on. Right. But I got it, living there for a year. I lived there for with the. And by the way, when I went there, it was the whole family I took. Right. So, <laughs> my youngest daughter, which I think you know her, Rachel, yeah. she never forgave us for that. <laughs> well, how old would she have been at the time? Oh, okay, okay. Bryce would be. Bryce was fifteen, so she would have been nine. Okay. Yeah, Jeez, I'd Ken, be more angry as yeah, a fifteen-year-old yeah, than yeah, a nine-year-old. Yeah, Kendall but. would have been twelve, and yeah, Rachel would have been nine. And and Rachel, when we before we have, I'm getting off topic, uh, I guess. But Rachel, before we left, she, Rachel, <laughs> 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 I, you know, if, if parents, I've, I've got all good kids, you know, I, none of them are, you know, evil or something, yeah. at least that I know of. <laughs> but uh, but they're all very different. I, yeah. I I just look at Lori all the time and go, how are they all so different? <laughs> like, but um, before we left, she had a whole literally pages of documents of of how well we were gone who she was going to be living with right so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah she she was not a fan of us removing her from her school oh. and friends and taking her to another country that is hard it, yeah it is yeah hard. at nine yeah. years old right yeah. 
But uh, I've got to say, actually, that's a bit off topic from where I guess we were going here, but probably met more people through her than any of the other kids. Really? Well, it's just, uh, she just embraces her school. And you remember, kids going to school, you go to school here, you get dressed away you go, but there's uniforms there. There's, uh, uh, okay. Yeah, there's different things, right? Yeah. So, which I thought was great, right? So there's just no, everybody's wearing the same thing. So yeah. what's, there's no argument about somebody's clothes or whatever, right? Now we're going to dye our hair so we can be different. That's but, right. Yeah. That's right. And uh, you know, Bryce used to get in trouble because he was that... Uh, 15 year old sort of thing and he'd kind of you know untuck his shirt like the wayne gretzky uh, thing yeah. and and uh, what we found certainly with him was the schooling he kind of the curriculum that he was on now the girls not so much but bryce was kind of the curriculum he was working on was what he'd already done so it was almost not that he was a year behind but he was familiar with their curriculum in that so he kind of like did grade nine twice in, mm. in that view so he was kind of the Canadian kid with the accent and little <laughs> smarty pants, right? <laughs> as much as I was worried about the girls, I found out pretty quick I better watch the boy. <laughs> funny how that happens. Yeah, eh? that, funny how that happens. But yeah, but getting back to racing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, no, I was uh, that that was uh, that was certainly a highlight. Obviously, being involved with that certainly as a, as a Canadian and an exchange firefighter. So when you do stuff like that, you you do really kind of carry the Canadian flag on your on your shoulder, right? So yeah. when we left, actually coming back in 2006, after when I was talking about the fire chief being a Rotarian and all that, and all, all, all I, I did, I don't know how many Rotary engagements in my full uniform and that. And they really took a shining to all that because we were just in, involved. And uh, yeah, we got offered to stay. I could have actually stayed there. So, but uh, my father-in-law actually told me when we left, you better bring her bring back. Bring her back. <laughs> yeah. So really my father-in-law, he's had a lot to do with my, bring her mo- back. my movement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, no. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've yeah. got that to carry on for your kids now, hey? Bring her back. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Actually, the uh, yeah. After we got married, he did tell me when the when the doctor and mayor married us, which was really neat because uh, the whole town showed up for that. As much as you know, we didn't want the big wedding. It was kind of a big wedding for because the the Canadizies are marrying, right? Aww. So and it was at the city hall. You know, we got married. He kind of shook my hand and he he just looks at me. He says, uh, "Welcome to the family. No refund." <laughs> <laughs> so I do pass that on. <laughs> no refund. I love it. <laughs> well, it's funny because you and I, when we first met that I can remember, was me working learning dispatch at the, In the fire, fire hall. hall. Yep, yeah, that's right. Yep, and so yep. obviously I have a soft spot for the fire hall. And also because at that time... That really opened up my eyes a lot to to what you guys do and and what you go through and and all of that. And I was only there for a brief time, just under a year, I think. Yeah, what, I worked. Just remind, what year would that have been that you were in there? It was the nineties. Because we left the hall in, I know this date very well. September fifteenth, nineteen ninety four is when we left that fire hall in Cranberry to our temporary facility in uh, in the one that we're mm. in now. Okay. 28 years ago. <laughs> I want to say, I think it was 98. Yeah. And it, like I said, forget who I was speaking to. It might have been Russell. I never felt safe in that hall then. Yep. In in 98 because, and, and I'm laughing, telling him, I was like, no, dude, you don't know. We had to pull maps out of the roof. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys had to color in. Like if a new subdivision went in, I can't imagine now. But everything was hand-drawn on all the maps and colored in. You're right, it would be. And we had to pull them down from the ceiling and find the cross streets and and manually do the pagers. And I said, it's not like on, it is now, but it wasn't like on TV where somebody calls in and their little red light pops up on the screen. I was like, we had a call display box. And if it was a cell phone, we were screwed because no phone number came up at the time. 
Yeah, yeah, we've we've evolved a little bit. <laughs> uh, you know that's uh, you know the maps. We don't color them in anymore. We've got the big printer over at City Hall where we could kind of just replace it. Yeah. But you're right. The maps. Well, actually, we do have these these quick grab maps. So we built a box with maps, and the guys can just okay. take, so they can actually take it with them. And then of course we have computers in the trucks now, which kind of have a lot of that so we get the pre-plans and right. information coming from our dispatchers do you have an automatic generator now or does somebody still have to pull the generator out and manually start the generator correct you still have to do that wow yeah, yeah. it's you know that 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 is um it's it, it you know it is what it is i yeah. mean for that and you know as you know with the hall and much discussion with that been going on it's you know, certainly something that Kind of boggles my mind with uh, so where we've been because I said I've been in the in the facility for a long time. I'm one of the last guards standing actually. I'm, in fact, I'm the last firefighter that actually worked in the the building in Cranberry that was in it when we moved. So that okay. that's we're still working now. Bill Grantham and Mickey Adam sort of stuff. And uh, there was Carl Jones at that time. We're kind of all hired around the same. And Jeff Lambert was just around that that area as well. We're kind of that younger group, if you would. Now yeah. we're all coming up into retiring right so yeah you guys were all the kids when we, i was there we yeah. were and, and yeah you were just the baby i actually. was yeah i think yeah. i was 19 yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and remember we're, it was temporary right so yeah. you, i mean as as the story goes councils come and councils go right so and dan Olette, uh you know the pre- chief prior to me because i'm just the chief that's standing in that position now just carrying on that torch that went through and uh, you know and the mayor and i had this very discussion but i'm Obviously, a chief that's living in a little bit of a different world, I think, with uh, there wasn't a lot of social media at that time. There wasn't yeah. this sort of things going on. If you wanted to have something to say, you wrote an article in the paper, and uh, and we kind of knew who you were. You had to put your name to it. Right. You weren't, you know, one, two, three, four, whatever. Or you'd make a phone call. Or and... you'd make a phone call or that, that sort of thing. So yeah. it's, and Dan, Dan obviously, uh, you know, prior to me, had, had a little bit of that going on, and and it certainly wears down, I mean, for where that was going. And I certainly saw that with Dan. Yeah, with our certainly our, our facilities are where we are now. Yeah, it's uh, it's long overdue. The building's 1958, right? Yeah. So, and I was just down in Victoria, actually, at a fire chief's uh, uh, meeting down there. And Victoria's building a, a massive and big facility. And I think the ambulance service isn't going to be involved with that, which is something that we actually tried to uh, do here. But there was certainly no appetite for that. That's too bad. Yeah, but uh, I mean, with that, uh, and Dan reminded me just a while ago that when we started this process, uh, the, the the dollar figure was one point eight million. Wow. I mean, my documents I see is two point five. I've I've got that. Yeah. And it's been it's been back and forth. But everybody, oh, it's you know, it's too soon. It's too it's too much money. It's too. But well, it's just going to get worse. Yeah, That's well, the thing. You know what? And and where we are is certainly with you know our staff and working through. And I I you know and I'm talking a lot of city staff that have put a lot of time into this. And where we are now is uh, you know getting uh, and the council the council of today have actually been I think very you know positive and actually moving things forward. And you know now coming up into a referendum in October, which is certainly a, a step forward for that for the public uh, going in because you can't have that kind of money and just kind of you know city do that. We're just not that financially feasible for that. But right. long term borrowing to, to where that is and i mean uh we had an open house just a while ago and only one person showed up right so uh. i mean it doesn't that but i say with the facility to where it is you know it's a un- unreinforced cinder block and i mean you, you've certainly been in that we've outgrown that in a very big way yeah uh, we have one fire truck that's outside and we're trying to actually because once we sold the hall in cranberry which is uh, that was the city's initiative at that time to do that and with the school board and that now that that truck is up at our works yard and we have to try to kind of get shelter for it. Mm. But all this was all 
pending a hall being built. So what it, was the history with moving out of Cranberry? Why did that hall no longer be feasible? Because that's the newest one, isn't it? It, it was the newest one. That yeah. was that was built in seventy two or seventy four. I, I remember it was, it was certainly right right in that neighborhood. And it was you got to remember in that day, you know, Wildwood had a fire hall, Cranberry had a fire hall, Westview had a fire hall, right? So where that where that was, but Cranberry was it was the newest newest building. It also wasn't post disaster, but it was for. The way that, that things had changed, because I say when I started, and we were talking earlier, becoming um, an auxiliary firefighter, volunteer, and then in those days, because I was working for beer, <laughs> I guess that is a volunteer. <laughs> you know, there was uh, 25, 30 people, right? So, and uh, Rocky was just actually, he just did a report with council, and he, he found that we actually had 100, which surprised me even. I said, I... I would have said 90, actually, but, but we're talking 90 to 100, 75 to 90, 100 people, right? That's a lot. Yeah, it is. And where we are today with our, this is our, our auxiliary staff, right? right? Is that we're, we're down to, uh, to we just said that, uh, that chat today, we're 21 total. Really? Which live all over. They're not, you know, I mean, I struggle wow. for getting people in Wildwood because that's the only hall we have. Wild, we actually need one in Wildwood because um, our insurance grade ratings that we have in our community is based on where you, where you are, right? right. So, and, that, and that's like we say, talking about the fire hall in Cranberry. Uh, it was kind of built there because it was property that was given to them and there was covenants on that property. Like you and I could not have bought that property. It had no. to be used for either fire hall or educational purposes and there had to be government uh, sort of applications to who it could even be sold to. So everybody said, oh, we could have got more for that. No, actually, in council's decision, they knew this, and this is where our local public has all these great, grandiose ideas, but they don't really know the intricate details of this stuff. So, right, which I also knew because I was on the school board at the time. There you so, go, right? Yeah. So there's there's only a, a limited people that could buy that, right? Yeah. So and and the school board was utilizing it, but we kept a fire truck in there, which was kind of bonus for us because we kept it within the building. But once then it got bought totally, then the truck goes outside. So so I'm dealing with that, right? Which isn't good. Which isn't good. No. But, you know, but as it goes in, in fire halls, yeah, for the whole process where, where we've been, and I mean, I could talk for hours and hours on this, but we, uh, this council actually uh, was progressive and we put out for, you know, for tender, actually for a request, a request for proposal, an RFP as is known in our world, and um, for conceptual design class, you know, for costing and uh, and then feasibility. The, the, the low bidder was a company called Johnson & Davidson who builds all sorts of fire halls, certainly, certainly around all over. And, um, and they won that and they came and they, they did their feasibility study and, uh, and the conceptual designs. And then they combined and looking at a 50 year plan and saying, you know, what you have and what you don't have. And it's not like a house, right? So this is, and it's not a garage either for that matter. This right. is, this is stuff where, you know, you, it's life safety and it's the heartbeat of a community for response for your, uh, for your health and well being and emergency services. Right. So, mm-hmm. and, uh, and even protecting our firefighters and, and not just a post disaster building, cause that's part of your building code that you have to do for this stuff. Cause you would know that for schools and things like that, yeah. which has actually been done. Uh, with that, you know, firefighters and just for decontamination coming in after calls, uh, you know, uh, where you're storing your equipment, all this sort of stuff matters. You know, we call them, you know, like with uh, hot, warm and cold zones uh, that in, in buildings, gender neutral washrooms, public access, all this sort of sort of stuff. All that sort of needs to kind of take place. Right. So and it's all dictated now. Very, right? very much. so. Yeah. yeah. Like as, as you know, which I think is just uh, funny out there is that uh, with our, our community, you know, I've been tagged as building a Taj Mahal. It's. <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's uh, I see, you know, you chuckle and so do I, because I look at this and I'm going, at what time did I ever design a fire hall? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never. Uh, you know, I, it's not me. I, I you did, didn't even do the feasibility study, I didn't, right? I didn't do any yeah. studies. This is, A, the council initiatives, and this is what they came up with. And I'm a fire chief going, okay, I've got this many firefighters and I've got this many trucks and here's the building codes and this is what they come up with, right? And and they've had a committee that kind of analyzes some of that and the committees, you know, got their, their thoughts and process on this, but they're also the public as well, right? Yeah. So, and some have some very good input in that and, and those comments. And I was always supportive of having that community input put but at, at the end of the day uh it's got to be you know you can't lose sight of really what the whole purpose is here and myself as a fire chief i rely heavily on the city staff and our engineering department and so on because these are the people that actually build things right and uh, there's many sort of aspects of that and uh, you may know some of this be working the school board but there's things like you know design bid build and just design build and there's different you got to be very aware of certainly what you're doing because uh, you're comparing apples to oranges in a lot of cases here and some of it you design your building and you have input on that or other ones you just say okay here's x amount of money and build me what you got and uh if going down each road is uh you got to be just know know where you're going and i leave that up to our engineering department to do that so yeah myself as the fire chief like i said with many others so be standing in line just basically just trying to point out that you know we're here to protect the community and we want to do it the best way we can and and we will always do that and we just, but we also need the tools to do that job right right and, and we've been in that process for quite a while and it, it's actually silly to actually think that uh, you know we're what we've got now is actually okay and uh, when really we've had many councils go through this and acknowledge the fact that uh, we, we've got to move on yeah but it, but well it's it's concerning too because looking around at the disasters that have been happening throughout the province especially even in the last year all the i mean flooding but the wildfires and we're so contained here in in Cothet that getting response from elsewhere is not going to be something that's going to happen quickly if there's a big you're disaster right. you're right and i think we keep hearing about that earthquake that's no. maybe going to happen in the next who knows yeah. right it's i mean you don't nobody when. knows yeah, it's yeah, yeah. but there have been big ones yep. and they have hit here so i think first responders don't do us any good if you're buried under rubble and you can't get the trucks out then what do we do mm-hmm. that does worry me and me as well <laughs> <laughs> i bet <laughs> Go figure, hey? Yeah, go figure, yeah. <laughs> broom busters. Broom busters, yes. I wanted to talk to you about broom busters. Let's talk about broom, yes. Uh, it's changing subjects here. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I absolutely love broom busters. It, and it's, um, it was kind of a, an accidental thing that kind of happened. I've been cutting broom long before the broom busters were formed, actually, up in my neighborhood. It's simply because of the allergies that actually with some people have to that. And I mean, you know, there's lots of pollen, obviously, in the yeah. air. And, this, and, and broom is, is just horrible for that. And there's a couple of kids that were down at the end of the street that uh, just as a neighborhood, we knew that this, obviously, with the alder and everything else, but you know, there was some broom around there. And we thought, oh, you know, we just kind of eliminate that. And at that time, we thought pulling it would be a good idea. And this, I didn't know. So I started, we were doing that. And then we were cutting it. And then I was just realizing, oh, you know, when you do it in bloom, it seems to kind of not come back, which is... Now, not all the time, but right. it seemed to be the best options for it. So, And we were doing it all year long. And then uh, one day, I was the deputy fire chief, and Dan Olette, uh, the great uh, great boss that he was, he said, they want us to be part of the, there's got an invasive species council, and they want uh, somebody from the fire department to sit on that. And I'm going, invasives, what for? Like, you know, he says, I don't know, but uh, you're going to go on that. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> you're going. <laughs> so I'm like, oh. <laughs> so, you know. 
you know, dictating, uh, <laughs> you know, delegating, actually. Delegating, yeah, yeah. That's right, delegating. So I went down and uh, was part of this committee, the local committee, which is an invasive species, which they had a, a reps from the island and that. Just And it was interesting. I mean, I think it's something that everybody should really kind of just tap into about invasive species, uh, certainly in, in, in yards and, and around, uh, certainly anywhere for that matter. There's a lot of horrible stuff out there, you know, knotweed and hogweed and even the ivy for that. The uh, conversation was coming up and uh, they were talking about, you know, the invasive broom. And, I'm, and I just said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm cutting broom. Oh, okay, broom, blah, 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 blah. And they said, yeah, you know, that that's because of uh, certainly its content. There's 18,000 seeds per plant and this sort of stuff. And in New Zealand and in Australia, you know, this stuff has taken off. And, um, you know, it's it's uh, deemed a, a fire hazard. And I said, a fire? Well, I'm a fire, firefighter. Yeah, what? I said, what? You know, well, geez, okay. So uh, I did a little research on that. I found a lady on the island called uh, Joanne Sales, actually, out of uh, Qualicum Beach. And she runs a local chapter over there of the Broom Busters. And I said, well, look at that. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so I called up Joanne and she's going, so I told her who I was and says, you're a fire chief? And I said, well, I'm the deputy actually. And she goes, this stuff is flammable, you know, can you actually prove that? So I said, well, yeah. So so I did, a, I called a couple of my friends back in Australia and I knew a couple of guys in New Zealand and they told me some horrible stories about if you don't deal with this stuff, it will literally take off. And I could, I could certainly, well, just check out the broombusters.org website and you'll take, you'll see some photos on there that are taken in New Zealand where the mountains are covered in this stuff. Right. Really? And I'm like, wow. So, um, anyways, they're saying, yeah, you know, yeah, mate, you know, <laughs> this stuff is, it's horrible stuff. You know? So, um, what I did is I got a few people that were involved and there was a guy called Dennis Sugar actually that was in town. And I just uh, put out a little ad that we're going to cut some broom on Joyce Avenue. Right. So we did this sort of stuff. And, and the good side of Facebook, which is what we run in our department at, at Paul River Fire Rescue. Yeah. And uh, Trish had kind of posted this out. So we had a little broom buster event and like Dennis Sugar and a few others had shown up, a couple counselors. And I said, are we cutting all this? And we cut enough broom to get a great big pile, right? And then uh, uh, Mike Caban with the city is kind of involved with that. We got a dump truck and we took it down to the waste treatment site uh, down there and I did a under our fire prevention bylaw and mm. we, we set it on fire, right? Just our kind of first year to see and Mickey Adam was uh, kind of down there and we had our sprinkler protection unit. We've got a lot of stuff. And I say we're a full service start, uh, department and we work well with our other departments. And so we kind of did some training yeah. and set up our sprinkler units and things like that, that we can do in our community, which is a, is a great thing. And we put a torch to this and my even surprised me like, wow, this stuff just took off. Right? Really? It was gone. Like, just uh, like, wow. So a little and bit. And that's when it was, that's yeah. when it was in bloom? Uh, yeah, we cut it in bloom. Yeah, that's right. No, mind you, when it's actually in bloom and the plant is green, it's not that sort of the flammable, but it's okay. actually, it's after the fact, right? Oh, that this stuff, when the, when it, it dies off. When it dies of off, it. when it dies off. Now it, it's still, cause it's kind of an oily plant. It's got this oily sort of, uh, so what happens is it, it's kind of like a flash fuel. So what happens, it kind of goes up quick, like, like kind of like a match. Yeah. I think a little match sticks all through the, and it kind of throws the embers and it catches the next ones on fire. Okay. And then those embers, if it's on the forest edge, catches, and if it's dry mm -hmm. with our, our, our coastal, we're uh, the, the coastal range of forestry, we're a dry coastal range. We're not part of the boral forest, but, uh, which is all, that's, I'm not a forester. Russ could uh, yeah. explain a lot of that more <laughs> right. better than I could, certainly. Yeah. So uh, for wildfire mitigation, I realized very quickly, uh, this, uh, this is something actually that uh, we need to really kind of take back on. And uh, so um, we formed our local chapter of the, of the Broom Busters and um, sort of Paul Rear's division uh, at that. And we had run it right out of the fire hall. And I have, oh, 
God, the amount of people that are showing up. It's actually addictive, actually, once you get out. Like, you know, you know, cut broom. I actually want to go do it. Cut broom and bloom. And yeah. uh, we've got loppers. We lend people. I mean, last year we did the uh, Penticton Trail up there. They did a lovely job at forest mitigation in the forest over there. And some people may not think, but uh, Ryan Toms, who's our, uh, our emergency planner in the community, was kind of involved with that. And that is a good deal, actually. But uh, by moving this around, the broom took off in there. So, uh so our, our whole team last year, we did it through our fire prevention week. We went up there and just uh, had a team of people went up there and just wiped it right out. Now, mind yeah. you, we're going back up and we'll do it again this year. And we got some signs up there because you could actually pull it in the off seasons, like the small plants, just pull them. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and then, uh, but during bloom, this is certainly the best time. Right now is 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 a key place as well because you've seen the plants are just starting to so once it's starting to grow you can do that and uh, so do you do info sessions or, or training sessions so yep, that yep. because lots of people yeah. might not wreck it you know what I, I've seen it it's funny I can remember seeing it around different times yep. even as a kid but not realizing it's not supposed to be here well yeah and as a kid like when you know, uh, myself would be obviously a lot older than you <laughs> thank you for that <laughs> hardly noticed it right so uh but you know this all started broom in our certainly in canada started with just a few seeds down in souk really yeah in uh 1850 actually from a fellow but his name was actually captain walter grant really yeah so uh he was a fellow that came out of scotland i imagine <laughs> and uh and uh planted them over there and uh this is the beginning of what really uh, is the sad part of invasive species and uh you know it, it's kind of a bit of a joke out there because people laugh uh, i always say well broom it's the gateway weed because mm -hmm. there's other weeds out there that are uh we need to be if you talk about giant hogweed for yeah. example that is bad bad news because i mean that that's you know you can uh, get some horrible horrible rash you can i mean it's kind of got this uh kids will actually cut it and they kind of like a periscope sort of thing right and they get that sap on you it's it's very bad bad stuff so so part of the whole invasive species group and ourselves and even with broom is trying to get awareness on invasive species and this comes down to animals and all this sort of stuff but yeah but um you know and quoted correctly but i think you know invasive species is the second biggest threat to biodiversity next to uh, land actually for him yeah. yeah yeah it even comes down to the point with you know broom in itself i mean in oregon state uh, it's a big issue down there and they said they just in their forestry alone they figure they lose 47 million dollars uh, yearly actually on just on because what happens with with broom it uh, it takes over farmlands it uh, changes the toxicity in the soil it's got no benefit for animals or any of that and then of course with a fire hazard on top of that right down in california a lot of the wildfires you see down there and they're rolling up the hills it's actually broom really so, yeah oh yeah it's it's all over the coast like say in new zealand and uh, in australia and uh, i think even in brazil and uh, a few other places uh, certainly that it's it's really kind of taken off so there's a patch at Lang Bay that I noticed last year that I really badly wanted to keep stopping yep. and cut down. Well, if but you, I don't know what I'm doing, eight, so I I need to eighteen I need to... thousand seeds per mature plant. Wow. It it takes off quickly, and there's there's other plants out there too that people don't even notice. But I, you know, being a bit more involved with the invasives now, um, you know, the the butterfly bush, it's got that beautiful purple kind of flower on it, and this and they used to sell it in the nurseries. Yeah, and um, yeah, that's like. Uh, 40,000 seeds per pod wow. yeah it's that could be a very big problem and it's not like broom it's it's like a big rooty tree right so um wow. and broom gets pretty big we're getting pre we're getting pretty good because it's being noticed uh, uh you know brookfield and uh, 
BC Hydro on the power lines. They used to go around it because it was actually good at actually controlling the other native species that were uh-huh. growing up there. So we managed to convince them that the fire hazard, and they did have an incident that was out in the Lang Bay there a few years back where mm-hmm. it actually burnt up a few poles that they had and caused some grief for them. So they said, yeah, we're, so they're targeting now too. So when they actually do their clearing, they, they go through with that. So, which is good because our power lines was some of the biggest problems that we had. So, so you're yeah. coming up to the season, right? It's got, what is it like May and June? Yeah, yeah. It's literally like literally from uh, starting right now, actually coming up to about mid June sort of thing. And that's it. When, once you start getting the black pods on the actual plant, then that, that's when we cut it down because then it gets risky for transporting. So, uh, And what we do a lot of times, we'll pack them and pile them in the city crews and the regional district and the uh, highways department has actually been picking them up. And, uh, and then we take them and we've got a curtain burner actually that the regional district and the city share and uh, and we, we burn it in that. So that's been good. So there's a, you know, from starting from just, uh, you know, uh, one a couple you know one sort of meeting and then working yeah. down and now we've got a whole team of people that are doing that and they say i just love broom busters because they they go out there and it's their compa- it's uh, compassionate about doing it they're actually doing something good for the environment they're getting learning about invasives i go to the schools and i teach the schools with that and take the kids out and <laughs> nice. it's i mean yeah, there's nothing more rewarding than teaching children right? yeah really yeah yeah so. that's where all the change yeah. comes from so that's right so yeah. if people want to get involved in that or or learn more about it how do they do that well, with us, I guess I'm a bit old school. I kind of send e- an email out with the Broombusters and I get on our Broombusters email list. But the fire hall, because uh, I run it literally out of the corner of my desk out of the fire hall. And uh, I, don't, I really don't even have a budget for it. I mean, the highways have just given us a grant, which is uh, which Joanne kind of uh, got on the island. And then we got you know, almost $2,000 of it coming over here where I've actually got a, a people that I can pay. And we get some equipment with that and things like this. Uh, the uh, regional district has been good. And Ryan Toms through his group for you know wildfire prevention and this sort of stuff has been good and uh, so like I say I can't say enough about uh, certainly the, the efforts in the community with uh, you know trying to protect us from you know wildfire the fire smart program really I guess is really comes yeah. down to a fellow by the name of Mark Albert so which by the way actually just a plug for anybody first thing to do is obviously getting involved is sign yourself up for our emergency alert system which is on the city's website it's on the emergency info it's a kind of a little yellow tab and you can go onto the regional because di- it brings you to the regional district site yeah. and that is one you want to have that number call you if something's going on. You know, if you see it on Facebook and things like that, you know, I'd say there's good things about Facebook, but yeah. there's a lot of bad things about Facebook. Yeah. And if you're getting your information off of Facebook, you might want to reconsider where you're getting information. Yeah. Source facting and, you know, the city's website and the regional district site. Absolutely. And, and I do have that on my phone. Yeah. I do have it good. downloaded. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, get that down because there has been some confusion over, over the years because we've had it years ago and then we changed the program. And, right. and I say we, and I'm talking as all of us as, as emergency services that have been involved with that. So you have to re-register that. So and that's that's the new program. So make sure that because, I mean, it's a simple thing. This doesn't even have to do with emergencies, but if they're going to shut your water off or they're going to do anything that in your neighborhood, they can actually circle your neighborhood and just call your neighborhood or they can fan out to everybody and all right. that, that sort of stuff. So that that's part of emergency preparedness, right? So, and uh, the old saying I've always said, you know, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Right? There we so, go. Yeah. yeah. My, my, if my kids hear this, they'll just hate that. <laughs> they'll do, not again, dad. Yeah. 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 Actually, I, and it was something I learned, obviously, on the school board because Ryan had come present to us a couple times, but I like, you know, it's been brought up a few times about uh, evacuation plans and things like that. And right. lots of people don't know that they actually exist, yeah. um, but they are on the regional district website. Yeah. 
good information to make yourself prepared for everything. And that comes to many sort of things that you have to be aware of with not, not only, you know, signing yourself into that phone, knowing your evacuation routes, but do you have an emergency kit? Are you prepared, right? Can yeah. you, can you actually sustain yourself? Your neighbors, you know, I've, I've always said, you know, if you don't get along with your neighbors, make men's now because us as our fire hall and things like that, I can't guarantee you that we're going to be coming. Yeah. I don't know what's going to be happening. Obviously, if we can, we will. We're going to do everything we can, but... Uh, but if the whole city goes down at once, yeah. then everybody's depending on each other to get through, right? Well, that's and right. That's... I mean, I don't even have, you know, enough firefighters. Like, I mean, I say yeah. from years gone by to, you know, down to 21 auxiliaries and then got, you know, with our career staff, there's uh, 12, 15 actually, and then Rocky, myself and our office coordinator. And I told you, we don't meet any national standards. We we are, we're bare minimum for, for, for where we are. And, and uh, you know, we have to, you know, there's times where we have to reevaluate that. It's certainly as a community saying, you know, do, do we have enough for people to do the job, right? So right. ambulance service as well. I mean, there's wait times and ambulances and our police services. Is there, I've, I've heard buzz, good old Facebook, about with the mill curtailment. Yep probably forever if that affects what we need for fire services in the community yeah i mean right now the mill is still there Right. right. So even if there's people not in the mill, they're actually the risk goes up in the mill. There's not because well, people wouldn't notice. They would. They would right. notice it. So small fires come big fires. But at the end of the day, you got to remember that this the mill is still taxpayers. Right. They're still paying. So they they still deserve the same service that as anybody else as the taxpayers within the community. You know, we're we're not we're not a mill where the mill is you know gone bankrupt and shut down. This this mill is uh, is still operational to the point that it's still on site and and they're still being. Uh, uh, you know, deserving with the same services as everybody else. Right. Yeah. So no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I did hear that yeah. that discussion. So I was curious on the play on that. So twenty one auxiliaries, yep. which gets played for volunteers. They technically get paid, but it, it's not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But they, what would be yeah. ideal for a community this size for well, auxiliaries? Well, with auxiliaries, well, ideally is is having more firefighters on the truck initially. Right. right. So, and the thing that us certainly as as a fire service, you you get very quick response. Like you know, if, right now, if you actually called the fire department, you know, providing they're on another call, obviously, yeah. but uh, they're they get the call. You're a dispatcher. You're it's, it's how long it takes to dispatch them out. I have a standard as that fast as I could. That, that's <laughs> right. And these guys, you know, it, they're they're pretty bang on that within a minute they're out that door and they're on the way to your house, right? Right. And they're going to be showing up, and there could be two, three, four, and incredibly rare to see five <laughs> maybe on a practice night there might be a few auxiliaries kind of jumping in on that so first of all we need to have focus on having four that is obviously council's decision if we should ever do that then having more firefighters in to make meeting our national standards and for cities and so on right. if we go auxiliaries comfortable level for me where i would say no less would be 30 i would like to have maybe 40 that buffer zone because remember when you're responding these are people that have other jobs right? right they're doing whatever it may be in our community and some of them are doing uh, you know a, a fabulous job being a mechanic or working in a grocery store or wherever it may be they're electricians or they're tradesmen or and and i've got a whole array of people that actually do many many different jobs so, they could be ill well well that's right they could yeah. be ill i mean we just went through right yeah. so you know when you're calling for them i say there's so 21 how many am i going to get i don't know Right. We've had practice nights, so we've had other times where we might only get six. Sometimes we might get ten. 
But any average structure fire, and I'll just, you know, look at your house for that matter, it, it takes, you know, an average of 15 people actually for firefighters to come in and actually safely fight that fire within that home. And larger cities, you know, in Vancouver, down the lower mainland, that kind of have that multiple trucks coming in. In Paul River, we don't. Although right. Paul River is the big fish in that little pond. Uh, you know, we have uh, mutual aid agreements with Malaspina and Northside and Klahaman and, and sort of thing. And uh, and we, we all play well in the sandbox. We actually talk with each other. We do stuff. Uh, we have good emergency planning with, with Ryan and, and the group dealing with that. And uh, so we, we do what we can because people aren't jumping on ferries to come over and help us. Right. right. That's really important. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So there's, uh, there is challenges in that as well because it's, you know, our standards in our city here for what we have for training and that. In Malaspina or Northside, they, they, they do some challenges out there They because we don't get people. Why would you expect they do, right? So yeah. it's not like there's abundance of people hanging out. And, you know, it's, it's with us, even with age and that, you know, 60 is kind of like a cutoff for everybody, right? And uh, there may be in other places, they might be even a little bit older. And I'm not saying that that's a, a problem, but there's different jobs for people to do. They might, because we're hydrant based. You have a hydrant just outside of your house over here, for example, where yeah. in, uh, the regional districts and that, they might be walked with uh, water tenders and things like that would come in. So someone might just drive that tender and he'd just be a driver or this sort of stuff. So there is a job for everybody. And, and speaking of a job for everybody, there's uh, anybody in the community that wants to be in, be involved. The, the Canadian Red Cross is just crying for people, right? To And, and the Red Cross, one thing that's in, uh, about them is there's a job for everybody. Like right? either being involved in emergency evacuations, planning, or just even sitting at your desk and actually being part of a support team sort of thing. They, they can do all sorts of stuff with that. And if we ever had anything major in our community where we had to maybe move people or evacuate people from one to another... Yeah. Yeah. Nope. I, I bumped the mic here. <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah, we need people to make that happen. Right? Yeah. So, and uh, and that's where the, the community awareness and pride is. And I've always said, you know, if, if you're out there on Facebook and you're kind of make barking out and making comments on fire departments and emergency services and that, and you're not involved in the emergency services, you might want to kind of reevaluate really what you're saying because you might just be the problem. Right. So, yeah. Hmm, the Red Cross. Yeah, the Red Cross. And so that, that's accessible actually through, uh, well, the Red Cross, you can go on their websites and that. Uh, the regional district, again, here I'm plugging the regional district for some reason <laughs> because they're. they're, they're you play they're, nice in the sandbox. We play well in the sandbox. <laughs> We're all on the same team, right? So, yeah. <laughs> different governments, but on the same team. Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, you know, Ryan and, and the group down there, they, they kind of coordinate that. Like, if we ever need anybody from the Red Cross, us as the fire department, we go right through our dispatch service, and that's, uh, which is out of Campbell River. And they can activate the Red Cross uh, action team. Like if people have been, um, we've had fires in homes and things like that, unfortunately, and they might not be able to go back in their home. And then right. we'll call the Red Cross and then they have emergency uh, planning. They can put you up in a hotel or something like that for a few days while you can get back on your own. A lot of cases we actually have uh, people, if they get along with their neighbors, <laughs> the neighbors will take them in or family will take them in. And that is the best option for anybody. Right. right? Is, yeah. to have, is to that people actually can look after their own. That's why I say is, you know, having an emergency kit and actually being involved and knowing your evacuation routes and understanding your community, supporting your fire department and, and emergency services just makes it healthier for everybody. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, I say, it's, you know, sometimes actually certainly being a fire chief, uh, you know, it's my mother-in-law always kind of uh, pointed out that she always said that, uh, you know, in her in her accent, you know, Terry, he makes good decisions. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I think that was because I married his, her daughter. <laughs> 
But um, well, she's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know, in, in certainly in my life in emergency services, you kind of work distilling stuff in the different jobs that I've done, and, and ultimately, uh, you know, I became the, the top job as the fire chief. You know, looking back at that, uh, I don't regret any of that because it's certainly the you know the route that I did, and it was decisions that I made. But uh, it it certainly you can't predict the element of this of your community when you're in that moment to where we where you are, and I've, I've kind of touched base on a little bit of that about. You know how some comments that come certainly into the community back and forth and understanding stuff but uh you know people i hope understand that you know us doing a job that is you know our, our focus is actually on protection of the community and looking after people and uh a lot of stuff is uh, i find in this job uh, is very politically motivated right and yeah and, and, and doing that and it's I'm, I'm up for that task i mean it's you know yeah if i wasn't i'd just explode i guess right but, you know, you know, working with councils, and I expressed a little bit, certainly with the fire hall and relying on other, you know, city staff and the professionals and doing that. And that's, you know, where we work on that. And, and comments that certainly come out in the community kind of do, do surprise me. But if people, um, you know, want that, and I've been very well documented, and uh, Paul Galinsky has actually pointed that out many times to me about... If anybody has got these burning questions in the fire department, is just get off the keyboard and uh, come and give me a call and I'll have coffee with anybody. And by the way, I drink beer too. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've covered that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, there's uh, a few things out there that certainly uh, caught me even off guard was, um, you know, I have a boss too, right? And Russell Brewer, obviously, is my boss. And you know, prior to that was Mac Fraser and, and moving on down the line. But council ultimately is kind of sets those directions and even the services we have in our community, right? Yeah. I even have to explain to my staff sometime because if I could have everything I wanted in, in working through and I'd staff getting all the tools that we need and all that sort of stuff, well, then I would make that happen. But I don't have that luxury. Right. So obviously I have to manage my staff and making that happen. Certainly one topic that was brought up that uh, really sort of kind of caught me off guard was that uh, the fire bar, if you, mm. if you recall that. That uh, that was absolutely kind of blew up this community a lot. I was like, wow, look at this. And I really did, couldn't understand why because, you know, I was asked by council to uh, to research that. And, uh, and our, our mayor found this and realized it was very big back east and uh, what it was doing. But Firemark, the, the simplicity of that is 192 insurance companies throughout Canada. And, and what it is, is that on your, your policy and my policy, they're, they're charging us for fire service fees and it's covered under additional coverage section and everybody was talking about these costs that were involved but as much as uh, people wouldn't understand certainly what I was kind of bringing across and and, and trying to put that point but we're talking about a dollar 90 to three dollars and 40 cents roughly per thousand and the average policy's got like two thousand dollars so it might be six dollars and uh, and 80 cents is what we were talking about and that would be on your policy you know my whole stance on that was that just uh, these insurance companies honor the policy that they're actually charging their clients Right. Or take it off. That was my whole point. But for some reason, that, that just couldn't resonate with people. Mm, interesting. And, and I, I didn't really understand that. You know, and when you do the comparables with that, and I brought this up a few times and they didn't think it was fair, but, in, you know, in Fort McMurray, you know, back in 2016, you know, there was you know just shy of $4 billion of insurance loss in that community. And of that actual tiny little bit of the fire service cost would have equated for that community of $17 million. Wow. And for planning in our community, I said that's something that we needed to have in our back pocket should it happen. But what I, what I, you know, surprising to me was that some big insurance uh, people that were involved with this were actually lobbying heavy against this, and it, it turned our council, who gave me the, 
the direction to do this and then turned on that <laughs> at the end of the day and of course i as the fire chief go down in flames yeah with that and which is you know at the end of the day I, I can accept that i mean it's that's certainly that's the politics of the game but i just find it just bizarre that you know even just this year that the uh, the insurance companies with that are based on the property and casualty part of your insurances have just kind of posted their third highest profitable year since 1975 so the, the insurance companies are making buckets yeah not, not, not buckets billions of yeah. dollars and you and I are just subsidizing that yeah so it's just not fair it is interesting that that's on the policies yeah. and doesn't so it doesn't yeah. get paid out unless it's requested is that how that, that works that's right that's right it has to be requested and you have to have a, a bylaw in place to do that so this oh, is really a, and this was the big issue with firemark which is uh, based out of uh, Ontario who is the deals I've talked to many many fire chiefs on this and they just think it's like, why wouldn't you do that? And I said, well, you know what? It's it's the choice of ultimately it's council's decision, right? I do the research as their staff member and, and a lot of other city staff did as well. We present it to them. And then usually they make their choice on those decisions. And uh, But if you've got that... Uh, coming through the back door and people kind of unsubstantiated hype with great details kind of being kind of flashed out there, then it's changes their minds. And that I think is a, is a scary concept actually mm -hmm. uh, for when, you know, you're elected as you would know for a position and you take the facts and you make your decisions based on that. That's my two bits on that. Right. So, politics. Politics. You got her. <laughs> <laughs> So I have a last question for you, though. Sure. Because I've taken up a whole ton of your time. No, I don't. Time I, you know, valuable. I want to know what your favorite thing to do in the summer is. My favorite thing to do in the summer? Well, it's, Besides uh, drink beer. <laughs> it'll always involve some beer. <laughs> I, I've probably got a, a, thing, a favorite thing that's coming up, actually. But to be honest, my favorite thing in the summer is just to reconnect with old friends, really. It's, there's nothing more soul-searching than talking to your friends and bringing you bringing the world back into perspective of really what matters in life, right? And, um, you know, you've got your kids and you've got your family and that. But my, my core group of friends, people that brought me to the fire hall for, because there was beer, gave me that great <laughs> idea, right? It, those people, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's just being involved with them and all of our lives are changing too, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm the fire chief, but when I'm with them, I'm Terry, right? right. And it's a lot of that just doesn't, and it, they, they really take that kind of aspect of what, kind of goes on in my political world and it just kind of goes away so and usually in the summertime up I, we don't have a cabin up the lake in that and we never needed one because we have friends that do have cabins up the lake <laughs> which is and i will grab a hammer and do whatever they want and stuff certainly because i'm a bit handy yeah. and i can make those things happen and i have friends like uh, i don't know if you were but i've got a, a hot rod i have a 1969 chevelle right nice. in town yeah and there's a story with that too, but um, some of my friends actually have cars as well. So we might just go for a cruise, right? And we'll go out and you know, obviously can't drink when you're <laughs> doing that, <laughs> right? but we might go for ice cream or we might go somewhere or yeah. sit out outside of the city. And then uh, I just actually had a, a new purchase. Actually, I've got uh, a new a new bike. I've been riding motorcycles my whole life. As a kid, I grew up on bikes and dirt bikes and in 1997 competed in the World Police and Fire Games on a dirt bike. And I finished 10th really? finished overall, actually. Nice. And when you say 10th overall, I was racing against guys that were like stadium racers in the states so i thought i did pretty good 
<laughs> so what did you just buy? Yeah, I just bought a, a 2008 Harley Fatboy. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And of course, oh, but I, I made a point when I got that bike that Lori was with me when I bought it. And uh, and Lori, she's she's good. She doesn't mind being on the back of the bike. That's kind of a new a new thing. And that's kind of a summer thing. So yeah, it's just crazy. You got the car and the bike. And I'm going, yeah, well, I'm going to retire soon. And that's... That's where it's at. And you know what? I've I've worked my whole life, right? Yeah. And if that's a couple things that I've got, then so be it, right? So just remember, yeah. make sure you bring her back. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. The bike and the girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned in your this or that that uh, I'd rather die with my spouse, right? <laughs> yes, you did. Yes. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the way it has to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough yeah well thank you so much for taking the time to come chat with me and this has been fun and informative i learned lots of stuff so oh got a few more if you like uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll have to do another one yeah okay well, now you know what it's all about yeah no it's i i gotta say Aaron. i said that, you know one of the only reasons i came here is probably just because it's you actually oh. you know what you're uh, you know, I think you're, you're always true to your word. And, you know, I never know. I've never been on a podcast before. What am I expecting here? Am I, am I you know, getting attacked? I'm a fire chief. People are kind of <laughs> doing this thing. But the fact that, you know, you you were actually pushing that out there, I thought, you know what? I think that that's good. So, you know, thank you for just being who you are. Oh, thank you. And that's it for today's episode. A big thank you goes out to Terry for taking the time to join me for this episode. If you have questions about the fire services within the city, or are interested in busting some broom, please reach out to Terry at Powell River Fire Rescue. The number for the hall is 604-485-4431. You can also follow them on Facebook at Powell River Fire Rescue. Interested in becoming an auxiliary firefighter? Check out the city's website, powellriver.ca, and under the heading of Departments, choose Fire Rescue. You'll find a number of different items to choose from there, including information on becoming an auxiliary firefighter. Also on the first page of the city's website, to the far right, is an emergency info button. Look for the yellow. There's some good information there. It's always better to be prepared. Until next time, this is Aaron Reed. Thanks for listening to Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information about the podcast, visit www.coastalcurrents.ca or follow us on Facebook at Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. If you'd like to submit a topic or join the conversation as a guest, email Aaron at coastalcurrentswithaaron at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.